It's the song of the redeemed rising from the African plain. It's the song of the forgiven drowning out the Amazon rain. The song of Asian believers filled with God's holy fire. It's every tribe, every tongue, every nation, a love song born of a grateful choir. It's all God's children singing, glory, glory, hallelujah, he reigns, he reigns. And all the powers of darkness tremble at what they just heard, because all the powers of darkness can't drown out a single word. When all God's children sing out, glory, glory, hallelujah, he reigns, he reigns. Those words came to mind as we were praying for the persecuted church. And this morning we're going to be looking at the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom is the church. Um, we're looking at the historical narrative found in Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. If you don't have a Bible, there's a paperback somewhere around you on the chair, and it's going to be on page 540. You can turn there a while. Um, there's an a- advertisement on my app that I've been getting. Uh, Basically, it starts from outer space, you see the globe, and there's a catchy title, which I can't remember what it is, and a little red dot on the planet. And basically, you zoom in through the atmosphere to a region, to a country, and it brings you to this secluded spot that is gorgeous. It's a, it's a tourist attraction that they're advertising. And um, basically, they want you to be attracted to this so that uh, it kind of connects you to a bigger world that you want, you want to go out and you want to investigate and you want to see. Allow me to substitute that specific spot in the advertisement with our text this morning. And we want to look at this story and actually zoom out and see uh, that our event is part of a larger story in the book of Acts. We zoom out further and we see that it's part of a bigger story that's in the New Testament. And we zoom out further that this is a story, a part of what the Bible is about, which arguably arguably would be that the Bible is a story of the kingdom of God, how it started, how it's continuing, and how it will continue into the future. Richard Pratt, Jr. says it this way, In one way or another, Every passage of Scripture reveals how God is accomplishing his infallible royal plan for history, how he will be glorified as obedience to his commands spreads throughout the earth as well. In the opening chapters of Genesis, God planted a sacred garden with the goal that his kingdom would fill the whole earth with obedient servants one day. Sin led to humanity's expulsion from Eden and corruption of the physical world, unquote. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God preserving his seed through the earthly kingdoms and the sinful choices of God's people to a point in history where Jesus comes and deals with um, the sin and he reestablishes his kingdom here on earth. His kingdom is amongst the earthly kingdoms, but one day he will banish all the kingdoms and their citizens and its citizens And he will dwell amongst his people. Obedient servants will be his lasting kingdom. That's the big picture. Now let's zoom back into our text. Um, 
and see what he has to say. And as we look at our text, remember we want to ask ourselves the question, to whom is the author writing and to what is the author's intentions for writing? As we've, if you've been here, you know that this is um, the book of Acts, whose author is Luke. And he is writing eyewitness accounts to a man named Theophilus, and subsequently us, the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was up, he was taken up. In Luke 1.4, we see the intent of the writing, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. As we move to Luke's second book, Acts, which is where we're at, I think it's safe to assume that his intent is the same, to bring certainty. But the time is to bring certainty about this new life, this new movement, the church. Mainly the spirit, who is the driving force of the church, but how, also how he is moving. If you recall in Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus' last words to those disciples with him were, but you will, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. One study Bible breaks it down into a three-part play. We have the witness to Jerusalem, which is chapters 1 through 9, to 8, 3. And part 2 would be the witness to Judea and Samaria, which is chapters 8, verse 4, to chapter 12, 25. Part 3 would be called the witness to the ends of the earth, chapter 13, 1 through 28, 31. And this morning we will be looking at the continuing part of three, part 3, Witnesses to the ends of the earth. And as we go through and look at Paul's witness, let's ask ourselves some questions. One, what is the content of his witness? Two, how does he deliver his witness? And three, what does his witness call to? That, let's read Acts 17, 16 through 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Eric. Eropagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I pass along and observe the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live, to live on the face of the earth, 
having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Arapakite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Father, we just read your words, and we pray that you would, your spirit would just give us understanding, give us open ears to hear what you are trying to tell us this morning. And I just pray that my words would not stand in the way. And we praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I broke our passage down to four, four points um, that we will look at. The context for Paul's witness. Paul's witness about God. Paul's witness to reason. And the response to Paul's witness. So what is the context for Paul's witness? As we see in verse 16, Paul found himself locationally in Athens. And as we saw last week, He's waiting, or he was with Silas and Timothy, and because they went to Thessalonica and Berea, and the Jews were um, stirring up the the crowds, the brothers uh, took Paul out, and they took him to Athens. So we find Paul in Athens, waiting for Silas and Timothy to catch up to him. And uh, as he's there, he's kind of doing the sight sort I kind of picture him doing the sightseeing tour and all that. Um, but what he sees is a city full of uh, idols, philosophers, and religious people. And this kind of provokes an emotion within him. Uh, it is said that Athens is the birthplace of democracy, arts, science, and philosophy of Western civilization. At the time, Paul was in Athens. Their influence was waning, so it wasn't a influential city anymore like it had been as far as policies and ruling, but it was a, a place where um, morality and um, religious tones were addressed yet. So uh, they were debated and uh, kind of, they liked to talk to each other. <laughs> um, people like Plato, Socrates, Pericles, and other famous philosophers would have still been present in the city at the time. We see a likeness in our present-day culture in that they were open to almost anything as far as beliefs go. As our text continues, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And don't we like new? Or something in us just, if it's new, we've got to have it. Um, and that's kind of what they were except for with, with philosophies. F.F. Bruce writes about the Epicureans, uh, that their 
Their ple- uh, ple- the pleasure of being pleasure is the chief end in life. The pleasure most worth enjoying being a life of tranquility. That rings to our ears, doesn't it? Um, free from pain, disturbing passions, and superstitious fears, including the fear of death. They did not deny the existence of gods, but they kind of felt that the gods didn't really care about humans, so they're just out there doing their thing. Um, Stoics were aimed at living consistently with nature, and in practice, they laid great emphasis on the primacy of the traditional faculty in humanity and on individual self-sufficiency. In theology, they were essentially pantheistic. I think we can still see remnants of both philosophies playing out in our culture today, can we not? Paul's context for his witness was that as he saw the city full of idols and, and his spirit was provoked within him. And I want to pause here and point out, point out that in Romans 8.16, Paul writes, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And one of the assurances that we have when we are believers is that the Holy Spirit talks through our spirit. Figuratively speaking, we receive a sixth sense. He nudges us when we are on the edge of making a poor decision. And he opens our eyes as we read God's word and he gives us understanding. When we ignore his actions, we grieve him. But when we listen and obey, he gives us assurance of our belief. So if we live in a life of obedience, we are being assured of our faith. But if we're living in disobedience, we don't have that confidence that we are believers or we're um, in the kingdom. So Paul was provoked into conversing with pretty much anyone who would listen to him. Uh, he says the, um, the Stoics and the um, Epicureans and the Jewish synagogue he went to again. And so this lands him in the Areopagus. And the Areopagus, or Hill of Ares, named after the Greek god of war, was the ancient seat for the court uh, by the same name, Ares. The Roman name we know as Mars Hill. At this time of Paul's address, this was an open-air place where council sat for judiciary um, things uh, regarding morality and religious matters. So Paul's witness about God opens with a greeting and then observation about what he saw. Paul saw people who were lost without a shepherd. Even though they had multiple gods, they were afraid that they were missing someone. And they threw out this kind of catch-all for good luck in the altar of the unknown God. Paul takes this belief of theirs, and he wisely uses it to lower their defenses and presents the one true God by comparing the true God to false gods. And we see... His first uh, argument starts with creation, the God who made the world and everything in it. Some supporting verses, uh, Genesis 1.1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Job 38.4-11, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or on what were its bases sunk? 
Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut the sea with doors when they first opened from the womb? When I made the clouds in its garments in thick when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far you shall come and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Psalm eight three When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Isaiah forty five eighteen says For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God. Who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. So we see Paul comparing the creator God to created God. Paul then moves, his second argument is, um, he makes witness to as God as sustainer. When he says in verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Again, supporting verses from God's word, 1 Kings 19, 4-8, speaking of Elijah. And behold, an angel touched him, and he said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked of hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. If only our meals would last forty days and forty nights, right? Psalm 3, 3-5 three through five says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and a lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. Psalm thirteen five: Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love, My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Paul compares a self-sufficient God to a God who needs taken care of. His third argument about God is he gives witness to a God who ordains. Uh, He has authority to speak orders. He decrees something officially. He says in verse 26 and 27, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Supporting scripture would be Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, 
and this ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Proverbs 21, verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whichever he will, whichever way he will. So just to reiterate, in verses 24 through 26, Paul takes the men back to Genesis and creation and the fact that the premise of their religion was wrong. Jesus addressed the importance of proper foundation in Matthew 7, 24 through 27, when he speaks of the kind of foundation a house should have. The truth of the gospel is that God is the author and finisher of our faith. Man is not the center as our world is shouting at us nowadays. It is very similar to what we just saw in our Genesis study over the summer, where the people at the Tower of Babel said, let us make a name for ourselves. Listen to Paul's statement. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God. Paul is pointing to the kingdom of God where God is king. Jesus is God. His creation is where his kingdom resides. And humans do nothing to give him life. He gives us life in order that we can serve him in his kingdom. All of his servants serve obediently. This leads us into Paul's witness to reason. So he just presented his arguments about God in context of he was talking about all their gods. And he says, Paul masterfully goes on and logically tears down their uh, belief about idols and he's using their literature in the process. Acts 17.28 says, In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. For in him we live and move and have our being. Paul is referring to the Lord in verse 27, but the, the poem written by Epitomes of Critica actually was saying, for in you we live and move and have our being about Zeus. So the full, the full uh, poem is, they fashioned a tomb for you, holy and high one. Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. But you are not dead. You live and abide forever. For in you we live and move and have our being. Um, if you're familiar with the Bible, Titus, Paul uses it the line of Cretans are always liars in his, his writings there. But um, we see that the lie is that Epidemes considered Zeus, Zeus immortal. Uh, his, the Cretans saw Zeus as more, mortal. And Paul comes in and kind of uses their play against him, and he's saying the lie is that Zeus is immortal. Zeus is not God. Zeus has a beginning. Zeus has a, a start. 
So Paul later um, brings this up idea up again in Romans 1.19 when he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Paul is speaking the truth that there is a creator who is sovereign over all who deserves our worship. He is God, the one true God. And we should seek to know him. The poem which he quotes is actually speaking truth about God, not Zeus, or any other God, even though Epitomes was attributing Zeus as immortal. We as people were made to worship. You were made to worship. I was made to worship. But what we do is we take the objects of our worship, we, we replace God as our object of worship with objects that do not deserve our worship. Um, whether it's literal God images or ideas that we, we hold up to be uh, God. Um, they grow out of man's imagination, as we see in verse 29. Being then God's offering, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So we see Paul trying to point out the absurdity of, their, of this idea that man can imagine something in his head and then create it, he's the one that makes it, uh, or come up with an idea that he worships and turn around and give this idea, this thing, our loyalty, our homage, and our worth. The absurd thought is that something that is dead gives life. Paul calls this a debased, reprobate, corrupt, feudal mind, depending on your version. Can you think of how this thinking is prevalent in our culture today? Paul then says, The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Peter states it this way in Peter 2.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And why do Peter and Paul say this? Look in verse 31. Because he, God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. So who is this man whom God has appointed? Listen to what happens at Jesus' baptism. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And in Matthew 17 we read, When Jesus was with some disciples on the mountaintop, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. So if God says about Jesus... This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It begs the question of what is he saying? Listen to John 14.6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And in John 5.19-25, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. 
For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come under, into judgment, but passes from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has, not given, he has, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Jesus has the power of life. Remember, in the intro, when God created everything and placed man in the garden, and he said, spread my kingdom, what did humanity do? We said, God, I have a better idea. And we broke fellowship with him to go our own way. However, God promised he would correct the problem. And the amazing thing is that he would do it through humanity. In that, the cure, Jesus, would come through the human line. Jesus was born and was crucified to pay the penalty for our sin of rebellion. But he didn't stay dead. Proving or showing his power over death and God's kingdom was reestablished because as we read, our sin separates us, separates us from having a relationship with God. But Jesus says, I have taken on your sin. Believe in me. What Paul is running into is the kingdom of darkness. And it's blinding people and telling them, no, you need to work for your salvation. Or that there are many ways to get to God. That is what provokes Paul. And this is what should provoke us. Listen how Paul wraps up his witness in Acts 17.31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. What was Paul's response to, wit to the witness? I'm sorry, what was Paul's response to... What was the response to Paul's witness? Everyone fell on their face and repented. Not exactly. We find a response in verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Arapagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Most rejected, some showed sign of interest. Few believed. We do not ordain, if you will, the outcome of our witness. We are called to be a witness. As witnesses, we just declare the facts of what our eyes have been open to. As Gibson sometimes says, we are beggars showing other beggars where to get bread. We do not embellish or shortchange the gospel message. We declare truth. 
The truth that Jesus is the only way to life in the everlasting kingdom of God. We don't call people to a better life. When we see the witness of the apostles and those, they're always speaking about what? The death and resurrection of Christ. That's the truth. That's what saves us. The result is we may get a better life. But as we prayed this morning, you think the church is having a better life that we prayed for? We've been blessed, and we should be grateful for that blessing. But we need to be prepared uh, to give a witness, a true witness, for what we believe, which in turn would require that we know what we believe. Mark records in chapter 1, verse 14, that Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So what is your response? For the skeptic, do you believe this Jesus? For the believer... Do we know what we are calling people to? The book of Acts closes in a few more chapters, but the church that it speaks about continues to be a witness to this day. Again, just as we prayed, God has no other plan but to use us humans to grow his kingdom. Will we be obedient servants? In closing, as the musicians come up to lead us in our last song, I want to zoom back, zoom back out and get a glimpse of the kingdom of God from Revelations. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and honor and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? From where do have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he sits on the throne with, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more. Neither shall they thirst, the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes.